like to introduce um, Kimberly McEwen. Kim is um, a doctoral student and a Mosher McKinney Fellow in the History Department at the University of Montana in Missoula. Kim's research interests include Native American history, the history of medicine, and Asian history. She has a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in history from the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. Kim's also a U.S. Navy veteran, having served in Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Southern Watch. Today, Kim will be talking about the work of field matrons on the Blackfeet Reservation during the Progressive Era's um, sanitation campaign. Please welcome Kim McEwen. How's everyone doing? It's a lovely day out there, isn't it? Um, before I begin, I wanted to give you some notes on my terminology. Uh, when, oh, sorry about that. Um, whenever possible, as far as terminology is concerned, I will use specific tribe names. The only time I use the word Indian is when it's a governmental entity or a direct quote. And I removed the names of individuals um, from the record since it was a governmental record and I don't have the permission of the Blackfeet families and it's sensitive information. So out of respect, I've removed those names and just refer to them as a person in general. Now, a couple things that are going on during this time period uh, for the new era and the progressive era, um, which is roughly the 1890s to 1930s, um, especially the Indian agency is going to be very corrupt. And uh, coupled with that, you have the moral panic that's happening of the progressive era where society is supposed to hold everybody accountable to a moral standard. So those are some important facts, facts as we get going. Now, as far as the history of the field matrons, um, first and foremost, they monitored the Blackfeet families. So the history of monitoring the poor and non-white conveys the social hierarchy of medicine. And that's why that's, this story is important, is um, access to health care and legitimate health care for the Blackfeet families. All right, so here's a tuberculosis poster from the 1920s. And um, tuberculosis is going to be the main disease that I'm going to concentrate on for this presentation. Uh, there are major health concerns on Indian reservations throughout uh, the United States. And tuberculosis is by far the most deadly of um, the diseases that uh, Native peoples are experiencing. Now, Trachoma is going to be another one, and that's an eye infection. Um, it's kind of uh, it's a form of conjunctivitis. You have tuberculosis that's affecting the native populations. Influenza as well. We're coming off the heels of the 1918-19 uh, pandemic of influenza, and so you see bouts in the records of uh, influenza popping back up on the Blackfeet Reservation. And for... Um, a large portion of uh, the public community, infant and child mortality on native reservations becomes a major concern. So who were the field matrons? What was their purpose? These women provided the uh, reservation superintendents with information about families, 
Okay, and so even though they were the closest tied to the Blackfeet families, they are feeding information back to the Indian agents. Okay, so that can't um, be dismissed at all. Um, they are assimilation agents. They are checking on the Blackfeet families to make sure that they are um, conforming or attempting to conform with what the Indian agency expects um, for Native families. Now, they're also part of a broader progressive sanitation campaign, and this is intended to promote clean living, proper hygiene, and to refrain from immoral vices. And you can see this throughout the governmental documents during this time period. Now, the sanitation campaign is driven by concepts of filth theory. And this is a 19th century idea where poverty and dirt are the cause of disease. Okay? And couple that with the corruption and the incompetence of the Indian healthcare system, uh, the fact that racial inferiority is going to be the basis of health care for Blackfeet families, this becomes a major issue and it starts to become apparent to the public. Now, uh, the field matrons are going to be the front line for health care and arguably have the most interactions with Blackfeet families, especially the mothers, and we'll talk about why in a few minutes. The information they provided is going to be one of the first forms of governmental surveillance on uh, Native communities. Now, the situation must have been particularly um, complicated for Native field matrons, and we're going to talk about uh, one in particular. Now, when the uh, field matron corps was established, um, there is only going to be 34 Native women that um, serve as field matrons in, throughout the entire field matron process. So um, it was, there's very few records associated with these field matrons. They're essentially invisible, especially for the Native field matrons. Now, um, only fragments of information are available on these women. They're uh, very much, uh, because this is one of the only um, governmental roles open to women, there's not much that is said about them in general, okay? And luckily, the Broomfield, Colorado National Archives, which houses the Blackfeet um, um, records, was able to digitize two field matron notes for me. And it was a very interesting process going through these notes. The first one that I came across is a woman named A.G. Moore. And it took me months and months and months to figure out what A.G. Moore stood for. So for about six months of going through these notes, I looked, could not find her first name. She was always referred to Mrs. A.G. Moore. And then finally, on the bottom of one of the documents written in very scribbly handwriting, it finally said Ada G. Moore. And so this is a huge victory. I was jumping around and dancing because, you know, historians like to party like that. <laughs> so we know that she was from Pawnee, Oklahoma. But I'm unable to find her maiden name at this point, so I'm not very sure anything else besides that. Now the next one 
is going to be uh, Sarah Dean Blue Jacket Wilbur, who was a member of the Shawnee tribe. And this is her right here with all the Blackfeet mothers that she used to meet with. Okay. Now, um, here is her, her census, and she is right here at the age of 17. Okay, so she was um, the daughter of Eliza Blue Jacket. So that was pretty fun was to be able to find her in the census records and whatnot, especially after the disappointment of never finding much about Ada. Now, there are three main locations for those of you that might not be um, familiar with the Blackfeet Reservation. Number one, we have Browning right here, and that's where the agency um, location is going to be. The, the Indian Agency on Blackfeet is split up into three districts. So Browning is good, ah, right there. That's gonna be the main agency. And then over here in Cutbank, where you have Fort Pygon or Fort McKenzie, that's old agency, okay? And until 1895, that's where the uh, Office of Indian Affairs was for um, the Blackfeet Reservation. And then down here in Hart Butte, you have um, the third agency. Now, what, what needs to be known is that the hospital is right there for the sanitarium and whatnot, and the highest infection rates are gonna be down here in Hart Butte, okay? So, there's tales of rapid disease that's just coming off the reservations. And the public starts to take notice, and so it doesn't matter so much to the government when Blackfeet parents and Blackfeet families are complaining, but once it starts getting into the newspapers, then these congressional investigations begin. And one of them is going to be at the Blackfeet Boarding School and Reservation in 1914. And this was a scandalous investigation. What they found is that the children were, almost every child had an infection, whether it was tuberculosis, trachoma, or something else. They were all very sick, they were malnourished, some were on the verge of starvation, and they were doing all of these industrial school curriculum, which is uh, agriculture and whatnot, without shoes on in the middle of winter. So it was a huge, huge scandal that broke nationwide, right? And so the two investigators went back to Congress absolutely appalled by the state of the children and immediate, uh, asked for the immediate removal of the superintendent and the entire boarding school staff. Coincidentally, the records for the Blackfeet Reservation from 1913 to 1915 are missing. So this note in the congressional record is the only information about this um, investigation. So what do we know about the governmental documents, or from the governmental documents? These are records that went back to the Office of Indian Affairs in D.C., and they absolutely survey every aspect of Blackfeet life, okay? And this includes passages on health, hygiene, death rates, 
Lack of funding for the agency, which is a huge, huge problem in this story. And agricultural endeavors. Now, the goals of these reports um, was to make sure that Native peoples were assimilating. And if they were, it, was meant, it meant that they had uh, um, been living morally, that they were farming, especially with wheat and hay, and that they had agricultural aspirations, that they were trying to uh, farm and ranch on a large scale. Okay, so those were the goals of the Indian Agency. Now, during the 1910s and 1920s, the Blackfeet Agency did not understand how tuberculosis spread just as the rest of the country. And so they assumed that it was from lifestyle choices. It wasn't until 1947 when two doctors came out and said, hey, tuberculosis is infectious, period. And that's pretty evident considering all these highfalutin um, uh, sanitariums that were basically day spas for the rich and wealthy that had tuberculosis, which totally de defuncts the fact that tuberculosis was um, a low-class disease. Now, um, members of the agency sanitation campaign included the field matrons. And they scrutinized Blackfeet lives to make sure that they were assimilating and that they were improving through health care, which was essentially non-existent at this point anyway. So nationally, Indian agencies are going to model themselves after what was going on on the Blackfeet Reservation. It was the forerunner for many different programs. So <clears throat> every year the superintendent provided the general health section and in 1916 superintendent C.L. Lewis wrote there are a considerable number of Indians who are infected with tuberculosis in trachoma. In fact one physician places the percentage at 75 percent and it is believed unexaggerated. So they were very much aware on the infection rates and not much was done. Okay, so this idea of healthcare, it was more of a blame game during this time period. Now another issue is going to be the weather in Browning, Montana in particular. For those of you that might not be familiar with Browning, the weather is not for the faint of heart. Okay? <laughs> Um, until 1972, Browning held the Guinness World Record for the greatest temperature change in one day. And between January 23rd and January 24th, 1916, the temperature plunged from 44 degrees to negative 56 degrees. Now keep in mind how far, if we think about the map, the Heart Butte section, all the way trying to get up to the sanitarium. People weakened with tuberculosis. People that do not trust a governmental hospital. It is reasonable to see why they did not trust uh, the Indian agency to help them. Okay. Now, travel miseries are absolutely just inundated the, the governmental rules. But this wasn't really for the field matrons, okay? Um, the superintendents kept re uh, requesting uh, vehicles or horse-drawn vehicles, anything 
for the doctors. Okay, for the most part, women during this time period aren't going to be driving that much. Okay, and so they had to hitch a ride essentially, and so it was very difficult. But it, within the rules, the doctors that were going on horseback throughout the reservation, which was 1.5 million acres, it would take them two to four days to get to patients on the borders of the reservation. Okay, so that's another issue. But because it was so difficult to get to the hospital, and also the Blackfeet families did not trust the hospital, house-to-house -house visits of field matrons became the alternative. Now here's an auto request from one of the um, um, field matrons where they're asking for a vehicle because they have to get hitch rides with farmers essentially or the um, reservation policemen. But at the top it says, of the nine sick reported, all are not destitute. So it demonstrates what they're saying about the families, how they're talking about them. This very apathetic uh, statistical narrative throughout these reports. Okay? And this one was written by Sarah D. Uh, Wilbur. All right. Lost my place. All right, the added vehicles um, that eventually ha happen, they're given to the farmers, okay, the, um, the reservation farmers that are governmental employees. And so they are going to be the ones that take the field matrons from house to house. Now, <clears throat> what exactly were the field matrons' duties? They instructed Native women on socially acceptable, meaning uh, white practices, of non-Native America, okay? So ways to become a good housekeeper. They had healthcare, minor healthcare classes. They had sewing classes. They had cooking classes, parenting. They would go house to house to make sure that the housekeeping was being kept up. And if not, everything was reported back to the superintendent. And this, a lot of times, determined how much that family would receive from the agency. So if they were not complying with the goals of the field matron, she'd just write a report. And they wouldn't get their supplies. They wouldn't get any further help. So she, these women were the forerunners to, or uh, the first people that are going to determine what happens to these families. Now, many of these measures for the um, field matrons are going to be half-hearted and under underfunded. And a lot of that is because of the way the superintendents treated these women. Because even though they are in this assimilation agency role, they are still women. And during this time period, that's not very much an acceptable governmental path. Um, field matrons acted as a bridge between medical and social concerns. And one of the social concerns is going to be affairs. And this is a long piece that uh, Sarah D. Wilbur wrote to the superintendent by the name of F.C. Campbell, and his name will be important in a second. But the end of it says, he ran off with the wife last summer, caused considerable trouble, and nothing was ever done about the affair. If nothing is done now, I fear serious trouble. Respectfully, Sarah D. Wilbur. It's just, the superintendent's going to be the highest 
governmental agent. And he's receiving these reports about an affair. And so I was thinking about the university system. If a guy was cheating on his girlfriend in the dorms, would the president of the university get a report about that? So it just demonstrates how involved the superintendent is at this level. Okay. Um, one of the other um, obligations of the field matron is the Save the Babies campaign. And infant mortality rates, as I mentioned before, were astronomically high. So the campaign in particular is going to focus on deaths from tuberculosis, which was one in four on the um, um, Blackfeet Reservation. Now, according to Dr. Brianna Theobald, who has done much work on the Save the Babies campaign uh, on the Crow Reservation, as far as government intervention is concerned, field matrons actually did help as far as infant mortality rates. Be and that is evident between the reservations that had one field matron and those that did not, which were astronomically higher. So that is something that you have to give, it, give them credit for. Now, the wider American public, as I said, becomes uh, aware of these native baby deaths. And so they are going to move the field matrons to the central role of the Save the Babies campaign because of this. And one of the goals of this is an annual baby show. And the way that they talk about these baby shows is, is pretty derogatory within the roles. Um, um, surprised at how much the mothers love their children and whatnot, which is, is pretty horrifying, but it was 100 years ago, so I try not to judge. But this is from the Powder River County Examiner in 1920, and this is when Maggie Goodgun became Baby of the Year on the Blackfeet Reservation. Okay. So another goal of the Save the Babies campaign is that they wanted to increase hospital births. Now, most of the hospitals on reservations are going to be tuberculosis sanitariums. And they're trying to reduce the death rate of infants with tuberculosis. So having babies in a tuberculosis sanitarium, not going to attract a lot of mothers. On the Crow Reservation, they decided to go forward with it, and it increased infant mortality. And then on um, the Blackfeet Reservation, they said, absolutely not. We are not going to put a hot, uh, room in the tuberculosis ward. So that is one good thing. Now, um, some superintendents very much hated the field matrons, and one is going to be Horace G. Wilson, who held very few people in high regard. Actually, he didn't like anybody. <laughs> he did not like the black feet. He did not like field matrons. He didn't like doctors, children, teachers, temporary employees, employees in general, townspeople, or any other person that accidentally walked across the street in front of him. Okay. So his reports are pretty amusing, but as far as what he had to say about the field matrons, my opinion is that the field matrons have not been doing very good work during the past year. One reason for this is that there has only been one regular field matron and then the other two positions are filled by temporary employees. 
The field matron at the agency has been better than the field matrons at Old Agency in Hart Butte. I have reported in other communications to the Indian office that the field matron at Old Agency is a complete failure. So, I mean, these are just some of the passages about the field matrons. He was like this about everybody, and I just picture this man sending telegrams off to Washington all the time, telling on all of his employees. That's what it reads like. So it, it, he's a very interesting guy. But there's a large turnover during his tenure. And unfortunately, his later years, the um, information is missing. So I'm not sure how the relationship develops. It's another time period where everything just disappears. All right. Now, the field matrons did um, sway what happened to the family. In particular, one of the most unsavory aspects of their job is going to be the forcible detainment of Blackfeet to the sanitarium for treatment. Okay, so this confinement, this forced confinement, and um, it, it's just prevalent throughout the records. But nothing in them uh, suggests how, what was best for the Blackfeet families at all. It's all about how are we going to get them to comply instead. One aspect is when an aunt had removed her um, niece from a sanitarium because she did not trust them. And so the agents informed the aunt that they would be taking the niece back until the disease abated. No choice. Another example is when a 13-year-old daughter who was inflict, afflicted with trachoma um, uh, was discovered by the field matron. She wrote, this family will need considerable encouragement to remove their child. Okay, and so coupled that with uh, the confinement, the confiscation of children through boarding schools and the sanitarium, um, the, it's very apparent why Blackfeet parents would not want their children to be removed. Okay. Now, um, couple that also with the 1914 investigation where the kids were not being taken care of at the boarding schools. Why would parents want their children to go? You know? Now, in the later years, it appears that things are getting better for the agency. F.C. Campbell's bragging about his um, um, progress and whatnot, uh, that everything is getting better. But what is very interesting is this in the um, congressional record. Further, regarding the Blackfeet delegation, the fact is on November 26, 1925, the General Council of the Blackfeet Tribe met and endorsed the proceedings of the Helena meeting and again on February 25, 1926, at a duly called meeting by the superintendent of the Blackfeet Reservation. The said council again endorsed the proceedings at the Helena meeting and particularly requested the removal of Superintendent F.C. Campbell and a field matron by the name of Ada Moore. Mr. Campbell is the superintendent who has put forth so much false propaganda in regard to the five-year program. 
So everything within these documents, you have to read with a sense of skepticism. Because F.C. Campbell, all the other superintendents, the field matrons, they're all writing to their bosses. Okay? It, apart from Horace G. Wilson, who just liked to complain, they all want to keep their jobs. Okay? So they're going to make it look like they're doing much better than they are. Um, F.C. Campbell was finally replaced in 1929. Ada's tenure is unknown as of yet. I still have to figure out who she is more so. These women were supposed to be helpers, though. They were supposed to alleviate the issues and improve life on the reservation, but they were the front line on surveillance. Can't, you cannot forget that. Um, through their notes and the superintendent roles, it's hard to discern the Blackfeet perspective. Much more work is needed, but what the agency wanted and what the Blackfeet families wanted did not align. Thank you.